This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A note to listeners, the following podcast contains material that may not be appropriate for all audiences. Previously, on Father Wants Us Dead. Okay, when I walked in, I saw the bodies by the fireplace in the ballroom. Drag marks where they had been putting sleeping bags and draft uh, into the, I guess it's more like a ballroom than anything else. Uh, and seeing that there were, three of them were kids, it was nothing like anything I had ever seen before. It was terrible, that's all I can say. Very, most, one of the most terrible, darkest days of my life. I don't know what kind of monster this was, but it certainly was a monster. I'm Jessica Remo. And I'm Rebecca Everett. This is Father Wants Us Dead, a podcast about the John List murders from NJ.com and the Star Ledger. In episode one, we told you about the gruesome crime scene police uncovered 50 years ago in the ballroom of Breeze Knoll, a beautiful mansion in Westfield, New Jersey. The bodies of a mother and three children lined up on sleeping bags, and the grandmother lying dead upstairs. And the punch? The killer was, in fact, the father of the family, John Amel List. And he had disappeared, leaving behind bodies that wouldn't be found for a month. Jess and I have told you how this was a crime that forever changed this quiet town and really sent shockwaves through the region in the early 70s. We're talking about the mass murder of an innocent family in a mansion in one of the most desirable suburbs in New Jersey. If that doesn't make you lock your doors, what does? And as more details of the crime surfaced, they only raised more questions, especially because police kept List's chilling confession letter a secret. But today... 50 years later, we can tell you that there's even more to these killings than what John List put in the letter he left that night. So why did List slaughter his family? How did a man who seemed just like your average accountant and Sunday school teacher become this calculating, ruthless killer who committed a nearly perfect crime? These are the questions we're going to answer as we take you inside this monstrous act and the hunt for the man who committed it. In this episode, Rebecca and I will tell you who John List really was, starting with what people thought of him in Westfield, where his family lived for six years before he killed them all and disappeared. And we'll go back to where it all started, in the strict little home where he was raised, and give you a glimpse into the interesting circumstances of his marriage to the woman he would later kill. I promise you, it just gets stranger from here. But before we start, Rebecca, let's talk about what it's like to cold call people on the phone and tell them you want to talk about that horrific thing that happened to them. Yeah. As a reporter, this never gets easier. Sometimes they hang up on us. Other times they tell us off. We called more than 100 people while reporting this podcast. Here's Rebecca making the pitch to Brian Devlin, who lived two doors down from the List family at the time of the murders. Would he talk to us? 
Here goes nothing. Hello? Hi, this is Rebecca Everett. I'm a reporter with NJ.com. I was hoping to speak with Brian. Uh, what's this about? Is so, he? Uh, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a long story, but we're, we're doing a, a big uh, story and project with the Star Ledger about the 50th anniversary of the John List murders. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Can you believe it's been that long? Yeah, I can. It's, uh, I, but, but I still have the picture of him in my head. Pretty good reporter for finding me. Oh, <laughs> I've, I've, um, is that something you'd be up for talking to me about? Like just sort of what you remember from when you were growing up there? Sure. Yeah. Um, is now an okay time? Uh, it's as good as any right now. Okay. Um, where do you want to start? You know how it is, Jess. How appreciative you are when someone agrees to talk, especially like this, right on the spot. Brian was really thoughtful and remembered these moments so clearly. And it made me even more excited to interview his brother, Dave Devlin, who I got on the phone a week later. They both painted a picture of life in this nice, exclusive neighborhood. Here's how Brian described it. The DeVoe family lived across the street, and they had seven children. And my family had seven children. You know, back in the, those days, we um, each neighbor was was kind of a, a treasure. It was a pleasure to have a, a you know neighbors because we we want to have baseball games and stuff in the front yard. The Devlins told me they had been good friends with the Young family, who lived at Bree's Knoll before the lists. The Devlins' father was an artist and had even painted a mural in the mansion's foyer. But when the List family moved in in 1965, let's just say things were different. Here's how Dave remembers his first meeting with his new neighbor. So my dad and I went down and got an apple pie at Geiger's to welcome the Lists to the neighborhood. So we walked over there and we knocked on their door. You know, they kind of peered out. He was a little surprised that somebody was knocking at the door. And, And my dad was talking to John List and he's, you know, and here's an apple pie and and my dad proceeded to tell him about the neighborhood and who everybody is around us. And then he, he kind of got cut off by John List. And John List said, you know, thank you very much. But we like to keep to ourselves over here. So that was like a first kind of weird indication of what he was all about, you know. So we left. And my dad kind of shook his head. And we were going to say, well, whatever. Who rejects a nice neighbor like this and a nice neighbor with a pie at that? I can tell you that in 1965, a pie from Geiger's would have been the exact perfect welcome to Westfield gift. And unfortunately for the Devlin kids, this also means that the mansion is suddenly off limits. Here's Dave again. You know, and we had spent so much time in that house and in that yard. And uh, and by the way, what a magnificent house it was. I remember a big giant stairway, you know, like Tara, you know, um, (laughs) and, and that came down. And then, the, and then it went up into a balcony that fed to all the big rooms, you know, and um, and it, it was truly magnificent. I mean, uh, the Youngs didn't have a lot of money to dress it up, and obviously, either did John. But the big thing was the ballroom, which was it was like as it, it was it was almost as big as like a like a uh, a basketball court. Wow. Like, you know, people looked at that house and said, this family is doing okay. You certainly wouldn't think they were struggling financially. Yeah, no way. No one thought that. But no one really knew what was going on in that house. Brian said the list mostly kept to themselves. But once in a while, the boys would come out to join in a softball game or whatever the neighborhood kids were up to. They were um, 
a little bit innocent-like. Um, it, it's like they hadn't been out in the world a lot, and they didn't really socialize uh, comfortably. John and Fred would come over occasionally and, and, and want to get involved in playing with the games. And they were certainly welcome, but they were not very good at it. Like, they wouldn't be the uh, kid that you would pick first. They'd be the kid that you'd pick last on a softball game. Everyone we talked to from the neighborhood said Patty was different from her younger brothers, John and Fred. They were 15 and 13 when they died. Dave said she was pretty and more confident. Patty seemed to be like the more worldly one, you know, even at 16. Very, very uh, um, kind of outgoing as opposed to the rest. The two, the two boys, you know, at that time, we, we would kind of call nerdy, you know, um, uh, they, they, they had just come from the Midwest and, and, uh, of course we were in the middle of the sixties or the seventies. They were, you know, very straight laced and things like that, you know, um, wore white socks, which was a big no, no back then and things like that. You know? I've always wondered just why Patty ended up being so much more outgoing and socially adept than her brothers. Like, was it something about how they were raised or maybe she took after her mom and and her brothers took after their father. Because John List certainly wasn't making any friends. Yeah, the Devlins definitely remember Helen as being friendly. Here's how Dave described meeting her when she answered the door one day. Because I was just a little kid trying to find somebody to play with, you know? And uh, um, and she was as nice as could be. And um, she came down. She was in a nightgown. She came down because apparently she was bedridden. But she was like the sweetest, sweetest woman to me. It was a whole different story if you knocked on their door and Mr. List answered. He was kind of a jerk, though. And he'd peer through the door and go, what do you want? And it was almost like he, was, he wouldn't let you in the house. And he certainly wouldn't let the kids be exposed to, to you know, other people. Interviews like this made me wonder if John List didn't think these kids were good enough to hang out with his kids. He had raised them right. You know, he was so proper. He would be horrified to see these kids roaming barefoot around the neighborhood, all unkempt. I asked Dave about it. They never could come out and play. They were never, I don't know, maybe because we had long hair, maybe. I, you know what I mean? You know, my brothers and sisters was a Woodstock. I was the only one that, that didn't. And uh, silver Beatles lovers and things like that at mm-hmm. the time. And-, and Rebecca, don't forget what we heard in our first episode about John List's formal choice of clothing when he's working in the yard. We thought it might have been a rumor until the Devlin brothers confirmed it. Here's Dave. He used to come home from work in his, you know, in his black suit with a tie on and mow the lawn in that. He would mow his whole lawn in his in his suit. It's like, who does that? And you, you, know? you remember saying that? Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. And it was just strange. Yeah, this is 431 Hillside Avenue. Obviously not the same house that the Lists lived in because the house burned down a year a year after their murders. And no one seems to know why or how still to this day, though they have suspicions. Right, right. You know what I was thinking? Maybe we should roll our windows down so there's some, like, noise. Yeah, maybe we're going to get mosquito That's true. We'll try to be quick. <laughs> Crickets. That's yeah. Really nice. Oh, that's true. Right. Yeah. 
Right, so this is the lawn that List would mow in his suit. Right, it's such a lawn. Can you imagine doing all of this in your suit? No, but I also don't think that John List maybe even owned shorts, like gym <laughs> shorts. Like, I can't... That's an like excellent call, yeah. I'm sure he did not. He didn't have his casual sweats for mowing in. No, no way. Um, okay, so, you know, we know this isn't the same home, but being here, you do definitely get a sense of place of this long driveway of these big pine trees, but it definitely still feels exclusive with these beautifully manicured lawns and just really well taken care of. You know, the kids walking from yard to yard, finding a game or... Totally, what a great neighborhood to grow up in. Walk around, just ride your bike and go find other kids. The other thing is how quiet it is and how safe and set aside it feels like you do get a sense that if something happened here it would be like what you know like it's just com a complete contrast it's yeah I mean it really seems like really nice and idyllic but then at the same time like you think about that's not why we're here today we're here for the opposite reason like it's a beautiful neighborhood but it there's this sadness about it there's this sad awful tragedy that happened here 50 years ago the street right here was lined with police cars yeah. and, you know, the police walked into a house, you know, just like this and, and found these five bodies and everything changed, you know. Right. Okay. More right after this. All right, we've seen the neighborhood firsthand. Let's get back to the Devlin brothers who grew up with the List family in the late 60s and early 70s. They made it clear that John List wasn't just strange and standoffish. He could be violent. Brian told me List basically just didn't want anyone near his property. And if you tried to cut across his yard, he'd let you have it. One time he actually chased Brian and his friend. As we were walking through the backyard... John List um, started running after us in, in a, like he wanted to get us. And I guess we were probably 13, 14 years old at the time. And um, as he was chasing us, guy said, what are we running for? And we just stopped and then faced him. Brian said List snapped that he didn't want them on the property and not to come back. We realized he would go after you if you went on the lawn. And so once in a while, yeah, as kids, you would do it just to tease the guy. But he, he wasn't anybody to have fun with. He was just somebody who really did not want any part of anybody around him. You could see it wouldn't take much to make him um, just go crazy. They said sometimes List would even pick up a handful of rocks from his gravel driveway and just chuck them at kids who were pissing him off or on his lawn. Dave Devlin said he and a friend were playing in a construction site next to the house when it happened to them. They had like this, this uh, uh, I forgot what you, it was like a conveyor belt, like rollers that went down into the uh, foundation that they had just put in, okay? Mm -hmm. So we would, of course, take, you know, pieces of plywood and ride that thing, you know? And 
And I don't think he liked that, you know, it must have bothered him or something. And, uh, uh, again, he and I hunkered down because we were getting rocks that were thrown at us. And there was another target of the rock throwing, a donkey named Eliza, Eliza Doolittle. We had a donkey, believe it or not, at the time. My, my, my dad was running a little, little low on money one year, and he had seven kids, so... And we had a stable because we had an old carriage house, and uh, below was a stable. So he, they're getting us all a bunch of Christmas presents. He got us a donkey. Yeah, uh, Eliza Doolittle. <laughs> you know what you do is you you tie her up to a stake out, out on the um, out the front yard, and she would she would not only mow the lawn for you, she would she would uh, fertilize it for you. But every once in a while, if the ground was soft enough, she'd pull up that stake and she'd go a running. And uh, and Eliza, of course, would would you know made a beeline t- towards the list house. And when 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 Eliza you know got loose and was basically running across the lawn, he immediately would pick up rocks and start chucking them at at, at Eliza. You know, John List. Did it, did it ever like bray and make noise and and make him mad? Uh, no, no. She never made any noise. No, she she didn't. She was great. Um, you know, I'm looking at a picture of her right now with a. My dad used to do a you know a family um, photograph and 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 send it out for Christmas cards every year. You know, Eliza was a big part of our life. Jess, I can't think of anyone who would be less excited to have a donkey running and pooping in his yard than John List, right? Poor Eliza Doolittle. He was the kind of guy who just wouldn't tolerate anything below the pinnacle of propriety and respectability, and definitely not a donkey. And of course, before the end of our conversation with Dave, we had to ask what he remembered from when the List family's bodies were discovered in December 1971, 28 days after List ambushed and murdered them one by one. It was the following morning when Dave's friend called to tell him. I remember I was getting ready for school and I was in the kitchen and he called me and he goes, did you hear what happened? And I go, no, what? He goes, John List killed, killed his whole family. And I remember my mother looking and she goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? So that's John List in Westfield. Before he was a mass murderer, when he wasn't at work or church, he was basically the ultimate get off my lawn kind of a neighbor. He wasn't just a guy who lacks people skills. I think you could say he was an asshole, at least to some of his neighbors. Yeah, I mean, it was like anything that wasn't respectable and proper, he had to snuff out. We can't say why he did this horrendous thing without knowing how John List became this tightly wound man. Part of me thinks it was a combination of his mental health and his upbringing. Or maybe he was just a calculating, selfish son of a bitch who saw a way out and took it. And we'll hear more later from those who knew him better, those people he actually let inside the big house and even showed a bit more of himself too. But for now, we're going to go back, see why this guy was the way he was, because that's one of the big questions we're trying to answer here. This guy is unique. This guy is different. So this is Barney Tracy, retired Westfield police chief. Back when the killings happened in 1971, he was just 19 and one of those area kids who would drive by the mansion just to check it out. He becomes a cop in Westfield, and only a few years in, his chief makes him detective and at the same time hands him the John List case file and says, you're in charge now. I met up with Barney Tracy at Linden High School. He's a security guard there now, but the way he walks around chatting with everybody, it's like he's the mayor of the place. 
In my years of covering Union County, I never had much interaction with Tracy because, well, there just isn't much crime in Westfield. I was expecting a grizzled retired police chief, but actually, he's a big softy. He teared up a few times talking about the case. He's got five kids, including two he adopted. And I think as a father, he just cannot wrap his head around what John List did. Your children. Oh, my God. Every man I know would die for their kids. Wow. Now, his wife, she had a lot of issues, but still, you know, care for her. Don't kill her. And for murdering your mother. How do you, like, oh my God. How do you do that? So like every other cop who tried to find John List over the years, Barney Tracy immersed himself in that case file and tried to learn as much as he could about List. And Rebecca, we got much of that case file for the first time, but we also have something that the cops didn't have back then. John List's own account of his life from his jailhouse memoir. He wrote it in 2002 with his old army buddy. Yeah, and I do think it's a bit self-serving, but that memoir really does help us flesh out what we know about his upbringing and also what he was thinking 50 years ago. Let's dive in, Jess. So John List is from Bay City, Michigan. His mom was 39 when she married a 60-year-old widower, but the age difference was not the weirdest bit about their relationship. They were actually second cousins. I think it was maybe more common back then, but I also think it may be partly because of this insular community where he was raised, this tight-knit German-speaking community based around this conservative church. John List said he hardly interacted with anyone who wasn't a relative or other German Lutherans in the church. Sounds like he was a pretty isolated, lonely kid. Plus, his parents raised him in this very strict, rigid way where everyone does what's expected, works hard, doesn't ask for help. Here's how Barney Tracy described it in our interview. I think John List came from this prideful heritage where you didn't show emotion. Um, You didn't show weakness. But he didn't have a father who, you know, hugged him. But his mother seemed to overly compensate for that and sheltered him. So he wasn't really prepared for the world the way it is. Basically, people said List was a mama's boy. In his memoir, he said Alma would make him stop playing sometimes because she worried he would get overheated. She coddled him, even as an adult. As a young man, List joins the army, where being raised to do what you're told served him well. But he was apparently offended by the soldier's salty language. Of course he was. Funny that he eventually winds up in New Jersey because cursing is our birthright here. So John List survives both shelling and the foul language during World War II. As a lieutenant during the Korean War, he finds himself at Fort Eustis in Virginia, where he will meet the beautiful woman he'll later marry. It was a brief engagement, for reasons we'll get into next, but it does just make you think, if only these two people had really gotten to know each other better, maybe so much might have been different. Okay, Jess, I want you to picture this. 
It's October 13, 1951. John Liss, dressed in uniform, goes to a bowling alley in Newport News, Virginia, with some of his army buddies. He's too gangly and uncoordinated for most sports, but bowling he can do. He's 26, with ears that stick out from his glasses, kind of like Buddy Holly or a young Bill Gates. And this is where he meets Helen. In a photo from that night, List looks awkward. It's the picture I texted you, Jess, when I found it. Even though she's in a simple dress and she's holding a pair of bowling shoes, she still manages to look as elegant as though she's in a ball gown. Oh yeah, she looks amazing. What a smoke shell. They certainly don't look like two people that would end up together. But for better or worse, that's the magical night that it all started for John and Helen List. No one could possibly have imagined then that Helen List would become the first to die in her husband's methodical killing spree. Just three weeks shy of their 20th anniversary, John List murdered his bride. As Helen sat at the kitchen table in her bathrobe, eating toast and drinking a cup of coffee, List took a deep breath, gripped his pistol, and delivered a point-blank shot to the back of her head. By all accounts, the person who knew John and Helen List the best was Helen's sister, Jean Seifert. So we really wanted to talk to her. But after 50 years of getting calls from reporters, book authors, you name it, we aren't too surprised she didn't respond to our calls or a letter. I also sent your sent your mother, Jean, a letter. Um, I, I haven't heard back. I don't know if she, you know, isn't up for, for sharing it all again. I know it's... I, I do know that my mom does not talk about it and, you know, does not like any reference to it. So, you know, um, your efforts to get a hold of her probably will, will fail. <laughs> she's, pretty, she's pretty stubborn with that, so. That's Gene Seifert's son, Tim Seifert. He was just a kid when his aunt and cousins were murdered, and he can't remember them. What he can remember is the impact on his family. His mother loved Helen dearly, and she was devastated. For the kids, it was a strange time, to put it mildly. When my parents went to the funeral, I stayed home. And um, the FBI agents um, stayed at our house to protect us just in case he... They they mentioned that uh, many times that someone who did what he did would come back and try to kill other family members. That gives me chills, Rebecca. It sounds terrifying. I know, but Tim said actually it was more surreal than anything else. It was almost like being in a movie. He also told us how close his mom and dad were with Helen and John List. I asked him if, like so many people, they thought he was just odd. Well, I mean, uh, I think maybe the word odd can be taken out of context, different maybe. I think, you know, the way that they described him was a very meticulous type of guy, like him being the accountant and um, and very, very intelligent. He was very smart, but yet not very commonsensical. But before all that, Tim said the Seiferts were also pretty close with Helen and her first husband, Marvin Taylor. She married him as a teenager and they had a daughter, Brenda, and a baby boy who died. 
And then another tragedy. Marvin was killed in Korea. Helen was, of course, devastated. Some people said it seemed she never really got over Marvin, and in the retellings of the List story, this became a focal point. Dave Devlin even said he heard Helen kept a photo of Marvin in their bedroom. Well, I guess maybe now might be a good time to talk about their bedroom. For his part, John List was far from experienced. To quote from his memoir, a 26-year-old virgin. Yeah, but that would end up being short-lived because despite his religious views about waiting till marriage, a month later, Helen walks in with some news. Surprise, she's pregnant. And John List, ever the righteous gentleman, decides he ought to marry her, partly to be sure that the child is raised to be a proper Lutheran like him. So they get all these wedding plans together and are all ready to go when she drops another bomb on him. She actually isn't pregnant after all. And List says he's relieved, but he still feels like there's this momentum to get married. So they go through with it. He wrote in his memoir that he only realized much later it was possible that Helen had made up the whole pregnancy. If that were the case, the web of deceit she wove certainly had tragic consequences. Wait, like he thinks it's her fault? Like she duped him into marrying her? That's what it sounds like to me, Jess. I mean, we still don't know to this day whether she was ever pregnant. It seems like no one knows. Even Helen's sister didn't know. But either way, they're married now. They've started down this road together, and we all know where it leads. So we've talked about how John List was raised and how his parents and his church instilled in him this belief that things should be just so. The father provides, the wife obeys, the kids are good little boys and girls, everyone goes to church. For John List, that is living. There was just one teensy little problem. His life was never going to be like that. And while some people might learn to adapt, to become more flexible, to ask for help, or just adjust their expectations, John List just could not seem to do that. And he wasn't just inflexible, Rebecca. It's like List was born into the wrong time completely. His parents were older when they had him, and their community was more old-fashioned than most. And then it was the 60s, right? Can you think of anyone less fit to live through the 60s and then the 70s than John List? Seriously. By the time he was raising kids, it was like the world had left him behind. He was a dinosaur. His expectations and his reality could not be more different. And he couldn't let anyone know that the life inside the List home didn't fit that perfect idea of a good Lutheran family. Which brings us back to his marriage. It got off to kind of a rough start. They move back to Michigan so John can take an accounting job and be close to his mother since they're so close. He loses that job and Helen suffers a series of miscarriages. But in 1955, they have Patty, then John Jr. and Fred. And remember, they're raising Helen's daughter from her first marriage, Brenda. From the outside, they probably look like this happy little blended family. Except they're not. Because John and Helen were polar opposites. Jean Seifert would later testify that Helen completely dominated John. She would be demanding or outright mean to him. Eventually, Helen explicitly told him their marriage wouldn't work. Can you imagine hearing that, Rebecca? Yeah, how do you move past that? It really sounds like she was just miserable. Liz said she was upset because he wasn't providing her the lifestyle she wanted. 
She was drinking a lot. The sex was bad. She stopped going to church and her daughter, Brenda, got pregnant at 16 and was sent to a home for unwed mothers. Things were not good. Then in 1961, 10 years into their marriage, John and Helen and their three kids moved to Rochester, New York. This is one of several times where it seems like John Lish just expects all of his problems to be solved by a new job and a new home, a blank slate. And for a little while, things seem okay. The pay and perks were way better at his new job. Helen starts going back to church, which of course makes John happy. And he was even put in charge of the Sunday school. But beneath the surface, Rebecca, something else is happening. Even the pastor at their church starts to notice. He overheard Helen tell John List, if you were half the man my first husband was, we wouldn't be having the troubles we're having. Oof. So, Jess, I tried to call this pastor, Edward Sereski, but he wasn't well enough to do an interview, and unfortunately, he recently died. But his son, Chip Sereski, said it was very clear to his father that neither John nor Helen was what the other wanted in a spouse. He was much more of a conservative guy, and she wasn't, and... Um, you know, they were, I believe, oil and water. And as my father used to say a lot of times, uh, if you marry some, you know, opposites oftentimes attract, but when you marry somebody who's opposite to you, it can be a life in heaven or a life in hell. We also had the chance to talk to Kathleen Charfellow, who goes by Kay. She's 85 now, but in the 1960s, she and her husband were raising their kids right next door to the lists in Rochester. He was really kind of weird. I mean, he our, our yards were connected, and he used to cut his grass with a suit on, a suit and tie. And if, if he didn't have a suit jacket on, he had a white shirt and tie. Again with this mowing outfit. Yeah, I guess that was his style in Rochester, too. But I have to say, Jess, other than that, Kay's memories of what the lists were like there honestly just made me really sad. She painted this picture of Patty, John Jr., and Fred as these unsupervised kids who were just starved for attention, and maybe also just starved. Kay said that the List kids just wandered into her yard most summer afternoons, wanting to play and asking her husband what he was grilling for supper. They ate with them often, she said, because the couple was worried about whether anyone was cooking for them at home. Because John List at this point was working 10 or 12 hours a day. And the Charfellows almost never saw Helen. Kay said it was always just the three list kids riding bikes or playing together. Oh God, they were they were very very well behaved kids, you know. And they were they were friendly, especially you know the youngest one, Freddie, his name was. I don't think they had much of a family life, and I, you know, I knew the grand. They told us the kids told us that the grandmother was coming to stay with them because the mother was sick. Helen List was indeed sick. Many days, she didn't even get out of bed. She had symptoms her doctors back in Michigan couldn't explain. And we know that her health went even more downhill in Rochester. The only person at this point who knew what Helen was sick with was Helen. And she wasn't about to share that secret with anyone. If you're starting to get the sense that things are getting worse instead of better, you're not wrong. And that's where we'll pick up in our next episode. We're finally going to see what happens when John, Helen, and the List kids move to Westfield, the town of tree-lined avenues and Victorian mansions and even more expectations. 
For List, Westfield means even more mounting pressure that he has no idea how to handle. Things are getting worse and worse, and the bar for keeping up is just getting higher. Even more reasons to see his family as an accounting problem he needed to solve. If John List's killings were a horror movie, this is the rising action, right? That point where you want to yell a warning to the characters on the screen about what's coming. And of course, in the middle of all of this are Patty, John Jr., and Fred. Just kids trying to find themselves. But as we'll hear next, one of them started to notice things about their dad and even shared those concerns with friends in the final days. Things really heat up in episode three. We'll learn what's actually keeping Helen in bed every day. We'll see how List flew into a rage one night, months before the killings. And we'll see why everything from his beautiful home to his daughter's new hobby was an insurmountable problem. We'll take you inside the mind of John List as that pressure builds and he eventually decides on his solution. The elimination of his entire family. And then the disappearing act. He could never really turn to her and say, this is who I am. I'm not the guy who can buy a house like this. But for whatever reason, uh, you know, his own insecurities, he had to get that house and he had to make it look like he was a success. He said to me, you're a bitch as well as a witch. She didn't mention her father. She didn't mention John or Fred. She just said, I just have a feeling that something bad, you know, is going to happen. Father Wants Us Dead is a production of NJ Advance Media. It's reported, written, and produced by us, Jessica Remo and Rebecca Everett. Christopher Kelly is our executive producer and director. Alyssa Pasagio and Kevin Whitmer are also executive producers. Father Wants Us Dead was recorded at Sound On Sound Studios in Montclair, New Jersey. Our sound designer, mixer, and editor is Jacob Stone. Jacob and Alex Ritchie composed the music. And Alex also helped mix the podcast. James Shapiro is our associate audio engineer with help from Natalie Patterson. Additional audio was provided by Adam Kolick and Andre Malock. Our website was designed by Allah Salim. Special thanks to all our sources who agreed to talk to us, even though we know it wasn't easy. You can visit fatherwantsusdead.com for more about the story including crime scene photos and other extras we couldn't fit into the show. And you can email us at inbox at fatherwantsusdead.com. Subscribe to Father Wants Us Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please rate and review it and help us spread the word.